Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I walk with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Have you ever tried to win friends and influence people? That's the title of Dale Carnegie's classic book, right? How to Win Friends and Influence People. I have this really odd memory of visiting my father at work when I was a kid and seeing that book on his bookshelf. And I wondered why an HVAC technician and plumber would want to win friends and influence people. I mean, does my dad have trouble making friends? I mean, he seems to have plenty of friends and, you know, he's working as a property manager in an office building. I don't know how much influence he really wants or needs at the end of the day. But it turns out, you know, everyone's read this book, right? It is the book that defines the self-help genre, and it's filled with wisdom about how to make friends and influence people. And you've got all these famous quips in it like this, right? Criticisms are like homing pigeons. They always come home. A person's name to that person is the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Every man I meet is my superior in some way, in that I learn from him. And one of the reasons why birds and horses are not unhappy is because they're not trying to impress other birds and horses. It's folksy wisdom like that. And if I had to kind of summarize the content of the book as I understand it, it would be something like this. People want to be seen and understood and loved and appreciated for who they are. And you will be an effective leader, manager, boss, employee, employer, relationship, um, spouse, friend, you name it, if you can reflect that love and understanding back to them. Because what you'll do is you'll create a valuable win-win relationship of mutual trust and understanding, and you'll both benefit as a result. And this is, you know, 1936 here. This book is 85 years old in the year 2021, and it really is an American book. We're talking about the eighth most checked out book of all time in the New York Public Library, and the Library of Congress says it's one of the top 10 books in terms of its impact on the American literary world. And in some sense, I think the the content of the book is not just practical sort of self-help. I actually think it's profoundly theological. The idea that every person wants to be understood and loved and seen and appreciated for who they are, that's not necessarily a self-help book aphorism. I think it's a psycho-spiritual reality. Um, Psychologists will tell you that love is as necessary as food and water and shelter for a happy and healthy life. And theologians will tell you that you were made by a God uh, who wants to know you and be known and to love you in a way that involves zero uh, shame. And I can't speak for other cultures, but I will speak for us in the room today, that if someone were to love us in the way that Dale Carnegie uh, imagines, truly appreciating and understanding and delighting in us at our most intimate and vulnerable, 
we might believe that person to be a conduit for the love of God. That's how potent and powerful, I think, the idea is behind Dale Carnegie's book. I mean, think about this in your own life. Has anyone ever seen and understood and loved and appreciated you? Uh, This is how parents and spouses and close friends are supposed to be, right? It's not always like this, of course, but when our close, vulnerable relationships are functioning and running as they should be properly with all cylinders firing, we don't need a self-help book to win friends and influence people. Much of the book's advice comes naturally. Maybe you had a boss that saw a gifting in you and set up opportunities for you to succeed at work, right? He or she invested in you and then you in return are motivated at work and you become a better employee for the company. Maybe you had a teacher who saw passions and that teacher gave you opportunities to explore them beyond the normal classroom opportunity. And in return, you were a motivated and good student who helped others in the classroom succeed as well. And maybe you had a friend who helped you in a real time of need, and in return, you were drawn closer into that uh, intimate friendship, and you were able to return the favor one day when your friend was in need. Um, the the philosopher, uh, Jewish philosopher Martin Buber had relations, uh, had words for this. He talked about this. Um, it's the crux of his famous like I it and I thou philosophy. Have you heard of this? Are you familiar with this distinction? Most of our relationships um, that are sort of at a distance, Buber called them I-it relationships, right? It's where you relate to something or someone impersonally like they were an object. An I-it relationship is the relationship you have with the person who gives you food at your sheets drive through or your relationship that you have with your tree in your backyard, or the relationship you have with your bank account, right? You consider these relationships through like, is it pretty? Or is it mathematical? Or is it useful or pragmatic? An I-it relationship is something like this. Uh, You have a same sort of interaction with your cashier at Sheets with an office vending machine, right? That they both exist to facilitate a transaction which involves you getting, you know, food or snacks. And so that's what an I-it relationship is. But Buber, the philosopher, also proposed that there's a second type of relationship category called an I-thou relationship or like an I-you relationship framework where something mystical and transcendent happens when we find another human being and the relationship formed between those parties is formed just for the sake of the relationship alone. Right? And it's sort of what Dale Carnegie was trying to achieve by helping people win friends and influence people. He wanted to create a world in which every person ceased to be a means to an end for some other thing um, by making the relationship the primary end first. Uh, maybe you've heard the saying, liked people like people, loved people love people. Um, that's what an I, you, an I, thou framework that Buber's talking about is. That when we un- we can unlock this unlimited potential of relationship, when we treat the other person as if they were a human being uh, that are that we enjoy being in a relationship with, that changes things dramatically in the world. When we are seen and we are known and we are loved and appreciated as human beings, we respond by flourishing. You know, this happened to me when I was in college. Um, I was part of a campus group called InterVarsity. Some of you may know this. And in preparation, um, in my junior year there, the leadership of the club was going through its officer election. You know, they were looking for like president and vice president and, and those sort of things. 
And I thought that I was going to be the president of this club, okay? I was an active member since I was a freshman. I led Bible studies. It was my main extracurricular on uh, activity on campus. I was on leadership team the year before. I was qualified, I was gifted, and I thought the presidency was going to be mine. But when the election concluded, I found out that my peers didn't elect me to be the president of the club. They elected me to a, elected me to a different position called the large group coordinator. And that I was the person responsible for organizing and executing all of the events that took place at our weekly uh, Tuesday night gatherings. It was an important position, but it was not the president position. And I was disappointed and a little concerned. I mean, why this position instead? I didn't understand it. And I, I verbalized that and a trusted friend pulled me aside and said, Brian, you love being up front. You are an extrovert's extrovert. Can't you see how good you're going to be as the MC of our weekly meetings? Can't you see how uniquely gifted you are uh, to be up in front of a crowd? The presidency is a behind-the-scenes organizing, scheduling, uh, board meeting type of position. That would be wasted on you. We want you to be up front and be the face of our organization. And I said, well, I, I guess, okay. And, and the thing is that this leadership team in their election were absolutely right. For the next year of my college life as the large group coordinator, it was one of the most fun and fulfilling and creative years of my life. The position was a perfect fit for my public speaking and extroverted passions. Um, these friends of mine and colleagues in InterVarsity saw me and knew me intimately, and they appreciated what I brought to the table, and they set me up for success. I didn't get what I wanted. I got something better. And the result for me was a joyful sense of dedication to them uh, and also to the campus ministry. I'm going to call this theme today the power of being loved and understood unconditionally for who we are. I'm going to call it the power of you. Uh, meaning there's a real spiritual and emotional holistic power between people when we view each other as something other than a means to an end. That when someone knows us and loves us as individuals unconditionally, um, sparks fly and, and wonderful things happen. Um, and I think the power of you is on display in our reading today from Acts. Because by Acts 26, um, we have another, uh, another conversation, another defense, a third trial that Paul is going to undergo in his imprisonment. Um, to catch you up here, Paul has been arrested for reasons that aren't officially have been made clear. But when he was arrested and, and confined, he quickly became a political prisoner. Uh, the Jewish establishment in Jerusalem, uh, they did not like that he was going and talking about the love of God to people outside their ethnic and religious cultural Jewish fold. They didn't want that. And so they wanted him at least in chains in jail where he wasn't preaching uh, to pagans or they wanted him dead. However, the same group has not brought forward a convincing legal case that would actually merit Paul's execution. And so Paul is a political prisoner and the politicians say um, they're, they're in a tough space today because they, their two options are to either succumb to the political pressure and arrange for Paul um, to be unjustly arrested or, or imprisoned or killed, or they can do the ethical and right thing and free Paul, but risk open uh, opening up a rebellion in Jerusalem. Uh, so, you know, it's two bad choices, right? Miscarry justice for the one man and have Paul killed, or let him go and do the right thing and have a rebellion or a riot inside it as a result. 
The choice may be simple, but it isn't easy. And so there are two over men, uh, two men overseeing Paul's trial today. Um, first is Festus, the governor. And for those of you keeping track, he replaced the governor we talked about last week, that corrupt guy, Felix, um, that kept Paul in prison for two years. Um, Felix is out. Festus is in. So Festus is the first governor type. And Festus is with a man named Herod Agrippa, who on paper was the king of the Jews, right? The Jewish people have had kings for a very long time. And, um, uh, you know, like David's lineage leading the royal nation, right? This man was a descendant of David sitting on a king-like throne of Israel. But in reality, he was not very observant in his practice of Judaism. And he was a willing puppet king controlled by the higher-ups of the Roman Empire. So he was king in name only. Really, he was just a puppet ruler. So don't let these guys fool you, right? Um, Festus is someone um, who has heard Paul's story before and hasn't let him go. And Agrippa is a nasty guy who is, is working hard to keep the peace at Paul's expense. So neither of these guys are, are particularly great. And in our reading today, it's Agrippa's turn to hear the story. And so after all the pomp and circumstance of the king's arrival, Paul speaks what we think is defense, but actually he goes back to his gospel presentation notebook. Um, as we, in parts that come before our reading today, Paul tells his testimony about the Damascus Road, and he proclaims the same three golden threads we found in every Acts sermon so far the resurrection of the dead, the need for repentance, and Jesus' promise to return and judge the world. Paul talks about all of these things, he tells his testimony, but at the end, Paul does something remarkable. It leads uh, to one of my favorite moments, in fact, in the entire book of Acts. And that's where I want to focus our attention today. Um, Festus, uh, in hearing all this, says to Paul, you're out of your mind. And Paul responds like this. He says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king, Agrippa, knows about these things. And to him, I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of the things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. And so Paul asserts, right, again, the resurrection of the dead, Jesus' return. Festus, the governor, butts in and says, you're out of your mind. Paul ignores Festus, and he turns his attention to Agrippa. And he says, King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. Um, Our word here today, friends, is you. Y-O-U, you. Do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. This whole thing is set up. Everyone's watching. Uh, there's there's two leaders. There's a courtroom. There's attendants. There, there are people watching this happen. And yet, in this moment, there's really only two people. Paul and King Agrippa, a man who claims to be the king of the Jews, um, a man who is in a, a place where he should know these things, But Paul is calling him out, and he is saying that God is doing something remarkable in your backyard, Agrippa. Surely you know about it. What do you think of all this, King Agrippa? What do you believe? He's calling him out. This is a one-on-one moment that for uh, for in this moment, the jury, metaphorically speaking, because there isn't a jury, doesn't matter. The Festus doesn't matter. The crowds don't matter. Paul wants to know, Agrippa, what do you 
believe? What do you think? And Agrippa's response, he, he sees what's happening. It's very funny, I think. He says, in a short time, you would persuade, persuade me to be a Christian, right? As if instead of a defense of the court here, Paul, uh, Paul is going straight for an evangelistic plea to Agrippa. Agrippa sees it and he's like, so wait a minute here. You're, you're going to use your time to make a legal defense uh, for crimes that you have allegedly committed. And you're going to just preach the gospel at me? That's what you're doing today? And Paul's response is, I think, just as delightful, right? Uh, because everyone's laughing. It's like, oh, okay, so you, you want to witness to me. But Paul's response is funny, too. He says what? Short or long, I want you and everyone to have what I have except for these chains, <laughs> right? I imagine it's very funny. Paul holds up his wrists to show. He's like, I want everyone to have what I have except the chains. <laughs> and I think it's a very funny scene, and I think it gives Agrippa a laugh. Um, Agrippa, you see, um, could be a number of things to Paul. Agrippa could have been the the man who is the deciding factor about Paul's imprisonment, which he is. Uh, he could have been someone who was a mean to Paul's end of getting out of chains. Agrippa um, is not any of that, though, uh, to Paul. To Paul right now, Agrippa is just a person who needs Jesus. And instead of bracing and, and putting himself in a defensive position for the trial, Paul just says, forget it, my life's forfeit anyway, and he preaches instead. Right? Um, the gospel is not some abstract philosophical point for Agrippa to be persuaded to. The gospel is that God sent his son to die for Agrippa the king, Agrippa the Jew. Agrippa, the man and the husband and the father and the politician and the glutton and the arrogant man standing over Paul as judge, the whole man, top to bottom, this unique individual, uh, St. Paul says, he needs to hear the word. And so Paul is putting the power of you on display tonight, um, the power of the individual, the power of saying, we're not talking in abstractions here, we're not talking about categories, we're talking about Y-O-U-U, -U. what do you think? And ours is an age that's actually, you know, despite all the individual we talk, individualism we talk about in America, ours is an age that, that I think is obsessed with categories uh, instead of people. I think you know what I'm talking about, right? Because, you know, outside of your immediate circles, um, to the rest of the world, you are likely little more than a demographic. You are a consumer. You are a credit score. You are a data set. Um, the phrase now that we've been talking about for a while is identity politics. Um, because you're part of a voting block, right? And politicians want to get just enough uh, out of you to get a vote, but no more than that because it's not really efficient. Uh, and so we talk about identity politics in these categories. You're a Democrat or a Republican. Uh, you're an evangelical or you're a nun. You're a senior. Um, you're a young family father. You're male or female. Uh, you're a mother, you're a father, you're black, white, Hispanic, indigenous, you're working class, you're white collar, you're the 1%, you're the 99%. And we are grouped uh, into the brands we wear. We're grouped in the type of booze we drink with, or don't drink, or the cut of our clothing or the regions we live in. You know, I can go home this afternoon and I could uh, put $10 into Facebook and I could buy an advertisement where I wanted to put an advertisement in front of like bird watching single mothers with brown hair in the state of Maine. And I could find that group, right? I could find that demographic and I could put my advertisement in front of them. I don't how many don't know how many there are, like two hundred. I, I don't know, but you know, right? We think of things in that manner nowadays. Whether it's politics or commerce or work, 
right? None of them actually have the power of you. Because even if I advertise to the bird-watching single mothers with brown hair in the state of Maine, there is more about those people than the fact that they are single mothers with brown hair in the state of Maine who like to go bird-watching. There's more to them than that. Human beings, I think, and I think the scriptures attest to this, and I think it's psychologically correct, human beings are infinitely complex, each different from the other. And the only way to get to know them is by establishing this I-thou kind of relationship. But this morning, I, I want to actually shift gears and ask you to consider something different. I want to, instead of thinking about other people, I don't want to think about other people. I don't want to think about, you know, um, single mothers in the state of Maine with brown hair who like bird watching. Um, I want you to consider what kind of relationship you think God has with you. What kind of relationship do you and God have together? Because um, sometimes we can have a relationship with God that feels like Boober's um, I-it model of a relationship, right? God is a spirit in the sky who we have a transactional object relationship with. We admire his beauty. We recognize his omnipotence. We go to him with our burdens and we show him in exchange for that our adherences to his moral code and we hope he relieves our burdens. In that sense, God sort of exists in this I-it relationship where he, he um, exists as a, a kind of sheets cashier and our relationship is purely transactional. And it does kind of reflect a vending machine where we put in our good works and we receive blessings. Um, but what God wants us to establish with him, of course, is the opposite, right? Um, he has established with us and wants to have with us the, an I-thou relationship. This is the God who knows the number of hairs on our heads, right? Not because he's omnipotent and has a computer brain, but because each individual hair on your head was carefully planned and stitched there from the beginning when, when you were knitted in your mother's womb. God, friends, does not know you in the abstract. He knows you in the concrete. How silly is it to think that God knows us only because of one little identity marker like our race or our ethnicity or our family of origin? John the Baptist, as recorded in Luke's gospel, addresses this way of thinking directly. Um, and he calls out a group of Pharisees who've come to watch him preach. Uh, these were leaders in Judaism that taught that God's love was linked expressly uh, to nationalism and ethnicity. God, as if this was a relationship thing that um, of the I-it variety. They said, God's love for you is dependent on whether or not you can flash your Judaism uh, uh, card uh, and whether or not you've been following the commandments. And if you do that, then God's blessings will rain down. And so they could just sort of swipe their Judaism card with God like a turnstile at a subway and they would be granted access to the divine. And to them, John the Baptist says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, says John. For I tell you, Abraham is able from these stones to rise up children for Abraham. Now, don't, don't claim your ethnicity before God, says John the Baptist, because like God can make people of your ethnicity out of stones, <laughs> right? It's not that hard for him uh, to, to, to navigate that, which is to say when you put all this together, friends, we, we come to this powerful conclusion. Looking at Jesus' death and resurrection watching the movements of God on the pages of Bible of the Bible and hearing the stories of God's work in the past, I'm here to tell you today that God loves you. Right? And not like Jesus loves you like a bumper sticker, but God loves you. 
Not you, the Republican, not you, the Democrat, not you, the 1%, not you, the 99%, not you, the white person, not you, the American, not you, the consumer, not you, the, the, the data point. God loves every single inch and moment and experience in history that makes up the you that you have become as you are right now. And the great cosmic proof of this, of course, is what God talks about in our reading today, that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, that he's coming back to fix the world, and there's forgiveness of sins for everything you've done wrong. One of the great privileges of being a pastor is that I um, have the opportunity to hear all of you in the stories you tell me in the private and in the quiet difficulties of your lives. And I know you all come to church on Sunday mornings. You look great. I love your smiles and your hugs and your well wishes, and I enjoy being with you. But in my three years or so of being here and being among you, many of you, most of you, I think, have opened up to me about the things that make being you hard. These are some of the approximations of the things I'm learning about our congregation. These are not true to life. I'm not taking things that you have said to me and making them anonymous. These are sort of approximations of things that have gone on, generally speaking, right? Um, so so don't don't search for anybody in this. I'm, 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 I'm giving you examples. I'm not giving you um, uh, direct examples. Because some of us had terrible childhoods. Um, some of us had abusive parents. Uh, some of us have secret doubts about matters of faith. Some of us suffer from uh, from family dysfunction. Some of us have a history of substance abuse that pops back up from time to time. Some of us have relatives we no longer speak to, and some of us wonder why God put us on the earth at all. Some of us are crying in loneliness, and some of us are crushed because we can't live up to the expectations others set for us. And some of us are crushed because we can't live up to the expectations we set on ourselves. Again, those are all approximations. None of them apply directly to anyone to my knowledge. But the power of you is, is about the freedom and strength and resilience that comes from knowing that God loves all of you, including that stuff. God loves all the happy stuff that is you in public uh, and, and all the things that quietly crush you in private. God knows you and loves you. Friends, I tell you today, you are not an object or a demographic to God. You are not a data point on his scatter plot, and you are not un an unknown drone working his retail counter. You are so valuable and precious to God's omnipotent heart that he would suffer and die for you. You are seen, friends. You are loved. You are understood, and you are appreciated by the God of the heavens. Like Paul says to Agrippa today, God is calling you, friends. Oh, that in such a short time, you should come to believe and lose all of your chains too. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday, a Pennsylvania.